Well, good morning. Good to see you guys this week, and welcome to Grace, and glad that you're here. Uh, whenever that graphic comes up, I've, I've had a thousand people ask me, is that your new book? And it's not my new book, and I'm not planning on writing a new book, but if you want me to write a new book, I will write a new book, but later, because I'm busy, I'm tired, leave me alone, buy my old book. <laughs> so just to clear all that up, welcome to Grace. Good to see you guys and everybody online, and great to, uh, to connect with you this weekend. Uh, before we jump into uh, our conversation, I just want to um, go back and again say that uh, we would be deeply grateful, I would be grateful, if you could make it out to Discovery next weekend. So next Sunday, uh, after the second service, we're going to start our next round of Discovery groups. And if you have never done that, or if it's been a long time, maybe you've just been here a couple weeks started coming at Christmas. Uh, I think the record is 12 years later, somebody finally came to Discovery. I won't say their name, but I see you. And so uh, we, would, we, would, uh, we would just encourage it. Uh, you saw in that video, Grace is happening kind of all over the place. So Big Vision, 30 and 30, campuses all over the place, new ones coming. And that's just kind of the, a little bit of like the North America side. There's stuff all over the globe, different countries that we work in. And then there's just stuff around here in, in a big way. You know, there was a couple thousand people that were a part of game day just yesterday and all kinds of groups, all kinds of opportunities. So we want you to know about that. We want you to know that that stuff's available to you. Uh, we want you to know that that's why we do a lot of why, what we do. That's why we serve so much and why we give money and all those kind of stuff. That's, that's what's happening with all of that. And then we also want you to, to know how to uh, connect and grow and deepen your relationship with Christ. So discovery helps with all of that. And uh, I promise you that if you'll go through that process, it's, it's not that long of a process, but if you'll go through it, that it will help you with that. It'll take grace from something big to, to more like a family that you can connect in and be a part of, and, uh, and we would love, love for you to do it. So next weekend, uh, the 19th, we serve Chipotle for good night. So come out and get Chipotle. That's the reason I go. And so we go for that, and uh, I'll be there and walk you through that first week, and then we'll get rolling with it. But if you can put that on your calendar and put it high on your to-do list, um, I think you'll find it really valuable, okay? So be sure to check that out. All right, new series we started last weekend, Beginner's Guide to Hitting Your Life. And what we're talking about is Jesus' definition of what it means to be his follower. So he uses the word disciple. So he calls us to be his disciples. And a disciple is someone who looks at a teacher. Jesus was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. So they would look at a teacher and they would say, I want to know how they think. I want to, I want to know why they, they think what they think. I want to know their teachings. I want to know their life. I want to know their heart motivation. And I want to integrate all of that into my own so that the goal of a disciple in the ancient world was that you would be mistaken for your teacher so that people would hear you or look at how you invest your life and they would kind of immediately identify, oh, that person must be a disciple of Jesus. And so what does that mean to be his disciple? What does it mean to be his follower? And we have all kinds of those definitions out there in, in our culture, right? So for a lot of folks, that just means it's the team that I picked. So I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Muslim, I'm not Hindu, I'm Christian, right? Uh, for a lot of us, it's a tradition 
we grew up in that. We, we celebrate Christmas instead of Hanukkah kind of a thing. And, and, and we, we, it's just our family tradition where we went and what we did. And then for a lot of us, and this is what we're going to talk about, kind of focus on here this weekend, being a Christ follower equals a set of behaviors, that I, I practice these behaviors and I don't practice these behaviors, right? So I, I go to church and I'm nice to people <clears throat> and those kind of things. And I don't smoke, drink, chew, date girls who do cheer for Michigan, like the stuff that God hates. So, so like I wouldn't, I'm going to choose these things over these things and these behaviors put me in the camp and that must be what God's looking for. And we're asking is that correct? Is that what Jesus would, would teach us, all right? So we started last weekend, and we started in Luke 14, which is where we're going to hang out here for uh, the rest of, uh, of our series here. And what we did last week is we started with, at the end of the chapter. chapter. We're going to bounce back up to the beginning of the chapter here today. But we started here with Jesus' words here at the end of Luke 14, where he says this... He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. And Jesus says this in the context of us choosing to follow him or not. He says, you wouldn't start a tower, start building a tower and not weigh the cost of that so you could finish it. Because if it goes unfinished, you'd get ridiculed for it. Or you wouldn't go off to, to confront another king without weighing whether you could win that battle or not. If you did that, you'd be ridiculed for it. So don't choose to be my disciple or say that you're my disciple if you haven't thought it through or understood it. I told you a story last weekend about a friend of mine who is joining the, uh, the military, and uh, he's joining the military, and he sat down with me and was talking to me about that, and he said, I thought about this, I thought about this, I thought about this, I thought about this, I thought about this. I said, okay, let me just ask you one thing. You know that if you join the military, right, that you become property of the United States government, and you do what you're told, when you're told, where you're told, you know that, right? Right. Okay. I still want to join the military. Go for it. That's great, right? He leaves on Tuesday. When he wakes up Wednesday, he's not going to be shocked about the ramifications of the military, right? When the drill sergeant comes in and says, get out of bed, he's not going to be like, oh, just let me get my latte, and I'll be right there as soon as I watch the prices, right? right? That, it's not going to be his response because he has weighed it. He has understood it and said, this is what I'm going to do and I realize that I'm going to get into this, okay? And so that's what Jesus was saying. He was saying, consider these costs, weigh these costs, and make sure that, that you know what you're getting into. Because if you have a higher affection for the people in your life, and they have a greater authority, and they are the prominent governing body in your life, if they are in that place instead of me, you cannot be my disciple. That's what it means to be my disciple. If your mom still has more authority in your life or your dad or your wife or your kids than I do, then you cannot be my disciple. That's what it means to be my disciple. If the culture, your family culture, the, the greater culture, 
if that's defining you more than I'm defining you, then you cannot be my disciple because that's what it means to be my disciple. If you won't pick up your cross and follow me, if you won't deal with the ramifications of being a Christ follower, because there are always ramifications, if you refuse that, well, then you can't be my disciple because that's what it means to be my disciple. If you won't give up everything, if, you'll, if you're only inviting God into the places in your life where you deem that he's helpful or useful, but not giving your whole life over to Christ, then you cannot be my disciple because that's, that's what it means to be my disciple is what, what Jesus is saying, okay? So where's your affection? Where's your authority? Where's your governance? People who my, are my disciples have decided that I sit in the primary place of those things and they are following me. Now, conversation's online. It's on the podcast. It's, it's all over the place. You can catch up to speed with it. What I want to do this weekend is we kind of want to move the narrative forward a little bit by going to the beginning of chapter 14, where Jesus starts to kind of unplug some of these ideas and help us get our head around it. So if you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Luke chapter 14, and let's look at those together. It's page 847, and those Bibles are in the chairs if you want to use those. And then this is on the app. And we, like I said, we start at the end of the chapter. Now we're going backwards to the beginning. Verse 1, chapter 14 of Luke. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. And there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of the body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into the well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. All right? So let's talk about this for a little bit. We're going to have to get some cultural context for this to make sense. So Jesus is invited to dinner at a prominent Pharisee's house. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law gather. So in this ancient context, the Pharisees are kind of the religious nobility. And so these are the religious leaders. These are the religious leaders around them. The closest thing we would think of today is like the Pope and the bishops, right? So they're kind of the, the religious royalty. They had uh, power to exercise kind of things in a religious context. These guys actually had power, legal powers as well. They could arrest or retain someone. Like when Jesus was arrested in the garden, it was the temple guards who did that. So they had even governmental power to certain degrees there. And he's invited into their house. He's invited to their house, and this would have been like a fancy, formal kind of a thing. It was a big deal to have a meal there. Think of a state dinner or the Golden Globes, right? It's like a big thing. All the important people are up front, so like Tom Hanks and Brad Pitt's up front, and then like Chachi's like back there somewhere kind of thing. And so that's the way this would have set up. Jesus walks into this setting and right in front of him is a man with abnormal swelling. The, the older translations call, call it dropsy. Uh, it's, it's edemia is what it is. He's got swelling of the body. His body's not pumping out his fluid properly. So he has a disease. He has a sickness. 
The Pharisees would have seen that as something that is a result of sin. That's how the math that they did. You are sick because you sinned or your family sinned. So this person would have not been an honored guest, but would have been put right in front of Jesus as they were watching Jesus carefully. So they're setting Jesus up and they're testing him and they're trying to figure out if he will violate the laws related to the Sabbath. All of this is on the Sabbath. Now, what's the Sabbath? The Sabbath is an Old Testament law that God gave. First part of the Bible is the Old Testament. God gave laws to his people so they knew how to know him and follow him. The Old Testament Sabbath law was basically this. From sundown on Friday till sunup on Sunday, was the Sabbath, we would call it Saturday, was the Sabbath. And during that Sabbath, the original law was this, you were to rest your mind, your body, and your soul. That was the principle, right? You rest your mind, your body, and your soul. So you didn't work on the Sabbath. You didn't work your animals on the Sabbath. You didn't work your land on the Sabbath. You didn't work your body on the Sabbath. You didn't work your mind. You didn't stress out on the Sabbath. And then you rested your soul. You gave attention to to God. Even today, we would teach not the Sabbath law, but the Sabbath principle, that you're going to be healthier if one day a week you rest your mind, your body, and your soul. Don't work, don't stress out, put your phone away, all those kind of things, and rest. The Pharisees had done something fascinating with the Sabbath in an effort to control and to manipulate people They had taken a simple principle like rest your mind, your body, and your soul, and they had turned it into 67 different categories of rules. And they decided that these categories of rules that they made up was going to be the standard of which people around them were going to be held accountable. Most of them were pretty good at keeping the Sabbath, but most everybody else is violating some section of some rules somewhere about the Sabbath. And if you violated the rule of the Sabbath, the law of the Sabbath, then you were considered ungodly, your teachings were considered uncredible, and you could even be in legal trouble. On the Sabbath, there's a meal with a guy that they would have considered unclean, but they invited him put in the front row, and he landed right in front of Jesus. And Jesus is like, first of all, I'm God, so I know what you're doing. And so he asked this question. He knows they're trying to trick him. So he asked this question, and he says, so what do you guys think? I mean, this random guy with a disease shows up on the Sabbath at this meal that you invited me to. <laughs> Boy, you got me. What, what do you guys think? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they're silent. Because they don't want to say anything because they're trying to spring their trap on Jesus. Jesus does something fascinating. The Bible says this in verse 4. But they remained silent when he asked them that question the first time. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. That phrase, taking hold, is actually an old Greek phrase. And what it means is this. Jesus didn't touch him. He didn't kind of smack him in the forehead and say, be healed. Give me your $1,000. He didn't do that. What he did was he embraced him. He bear hugged him. You deem that he's unclean? Come here, big guy hugged him, squeezed him, drew him in, healed him, 
and sent him on his way. And then he looks at the Pharisees who are in shock. See, not only did Jesus heal on the Sabbath, but he interacted with someone who would make him unworthy, unclean, unfit to be at this dinner. And he looked at them as they were aghast that he had done this horrible, unbelievable thing. And he looked at him, them and he said, if you had a, a child in a well, you would violate the Sabbath. If one of your oxen had fallen into a well, you would violate the Sabbath, right? If you had your child, if you had somebody that you loved and cared for who was in trouble, you would have done what I just did. If something that you had that was valuable, an oxen would have been their most valuable tool, like a, like a, a, a tractor or an F-150, right? If it was in the well, if it was a Chevy, they would just left it in the well. But as an F-150, you get another F-150 and pull it out of the well, right? So they're like, they're like, he's like, if something you loved or was valuable, you would violate the Sabbath. You don't love this man and you don't consider him valuable so you have determined he's unteachable, he's untouchable. And Jesus, by acting on his heart, exposed theirs. Exposed theirs. The Pharisees were spiritual elitist, is who they were. And it's what they did. They, they would literally, like, make, stuff up, right? They, they would pick and choose what sins were acceptable or unacceptable. And based on what they picked and chose, they would build these camps. And they would find the, the sins that were unacceptable, but they were good at, and they would emphasize those things. They were really good at keeping the Sabbath. And so 67 different categories of how to keep the Sabbath. And they would then hold you accountable to what you were no good at. If you were wealthy and in a position of power with servants, it's pretty easy for you to keep the Sabbath. But if you had to milk the cows, pretty hard for you to keep the Sabbath. And so they would rule you in spiritually or rule you out spiritually by what they declared was right with God and based on their successful avoidance of what they declared was wrong with God. They were spiritual elitists, and that's what they were doing with Jesus. And Jesus just pushed back, and he said, you guys are hypocrites. You're hypocrites. You, you think you just ruled me out? You would do the exact same thing if you loved or cared for someone like I love and care for this person. Now, when I read this, this story, this account, when I see myself in this, I don't see myself as the man with abnormal swelling. I mean, I put on a few pounds, it was the holidays, but I don't really have like this disease, right? I don't view myself as Jesus. I view myself as the Pharisees. That's the, the role I would play in this story. Because if we're honest, all of us struggle with some form of spiritual elitism where we have determined in our mind that these practices must make us right with God and those practices must make them unright with God 
Therefore, we are in the better position spiritually than they are, and we're the people that God would favor and be pleased with, and those people are the people that God would disfavor and be unpleased with, right? Now, we wouldn't do it about the Sabbath. We would just do it about something else, just something else, right? So let's think about this for a minute. Let's just pick some sins. Let's start with greed. Greed's a big conversation in our culture today, whether or not, how rich is too rich, right? How many things should you have? Shouldn't you take all those things and give them to everybody else so that everybody has the same equal standing? And it's immoral, it's ungodly, it's unacceptable that you would be that rich. After all, who needs a Ferrari? Who in the world needs a Ferrari? I mean, driving a Ferrari is ridiculous. And a Mercedes, that is ridiculous that someone would spend that much money on a car. And if you are driving a Ferrari, or you are driving a Mercedes, or you are driving whatever ornament that I decide is too nice for you to drive, then there is no way, I, I, that is ridiculous. God is not pleased. You hate poor people, and you should not be doing that. Who needs a Ferrari, right? Now, the problem with spiritual elitism is that when you take a spiritual elitist position, it's very easy to point it out and to change the accusation back to you. So I might say, who needs Chipotle? I mean, who, $15 for rice and beans? Really? Who needs Chipotle? And who needs Chipotle multiple times a week? That is ridiculous. That any, Ferrari's a $5 billion company, Chipotle's a $30 billion company. Who's wasting more money? See? Who needs Starbucks? Starbucks, $7 for coffee? Coffee, for seven bucks you can get a can of Taster's Choice. You can drink coffee for like a year and a half and it never goes bad. You can put it in a closet, get it out 40 years later, it tastes exactly the same, right? <laughs> Who in the world needs to spend that kind of money on something like that? And all we gotta do is flip the coin because you made up the rules and it's, Greed has nothing to do with what kind of car you drive or what kind of coffee you drink. It has everything to do with the position of your heart. Let's go to addictions, right? Is it a sin to be addicted? Yes, it is. That person's addicted to alcohol. They're addicted to cigarettes. They're addicted to drugs. I mean, good night. God would, I, I do not have any of those addictions. And those addictions kill you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you are defi defiling your body by putting those kind of things into it. All right. So addictions is about what controls and governs and has authority over your body and what you're affectionate about, right? Right. Okay. What about sugar? What about sugar? What, what about caffeine? They can't function without a beer. <laughs> Have you seen yourself in the morning before coffee? What about caffeine? What about food? They're addicted to cigarettes. They're addicted to Big Macs. This one's going to kill you faster. Right? What, do we do? what are you doing? Well, I don't struggle with 
alcohol. Well, I don't struggle with a food addiction. Well, I don't struggle with tobacco. Well, I personally do not struggle with an exercise addiction. <laughs> And Jesus would look, well, you healed on the Sabbath. If your kid was in a well, if your oxen was in a well, what are you talking about? Here's one. Sexual immorality. We're to be pure sexually. We're to honor God sexually, right? And I do not struggle with heterosexuality. I do not struggle with homosexuality. Aren't we talking about who has authority over our body? So why is your sexual temptation different, worse, more egregious to God than my sexual temptation? I was at a pastor's meeting. I got in a lot of trouble for this, by the way. I was at a pastor's meeting, and, and the pastor, a guy raised his hand, got, kind of got on a soapbox. He goes, I think the number one problem facing the church today is their embrace of homosexuality and the stance that they're taking and their homosexuals are out to get us. And I raised my hand and I said, I said, I'll be honest with you, I don't know about you, but I got a lot bigger problems with heterosexuality in my church than I do with homosexuality. Like a thousand to one. Right? Your sinful behavior and your sinful behavior. You're giving in to the lust of your flesh and you're dating this guy. You're giving in to the lust of the flesh and you're pulling this up on the internet. What are we talking about? Aren't we talking about who has governance over our bodies? Aren't we talking about who has authority over our bodies? You healed on the Sabbath. You had an ox in the well and got it out. What are we talking about? That somehow your sin is different than mine and your sin somehow removes you from dependency on the grace and the forgiveness of God and mine doesn't? Jesus would look at us and say, wait a minute. Are we really going to play this game that following me is a set of behaviors and the behaviors that you have chosen or the behaviors that you have mastered have somehow put you in a different relationship with me than somebody else's behaviors? The type of sin is not the issue that qualifies or disqualifies us from being a disciple of Christ. The choice to die to oneself is what qualifies us or disqualifies us from being a follower of Christ. Salvation is accepting the death of Jesus on your behalf. Discipleship is accepting the death of yourself. That I no longer have governance over who I am. I enlisted. When the drill sergeant gives me an order, there's nothing shocking about that. 
I counted the cost, see, and I engaged in placing Christ in first place of affection, first place of authority, first place of governance, regardless of what my sin pattern happens to be. A disciple forsakes sin and forsakes self and chooses to embrace Christ. And whether my sin plays out over here or my sin plays out over here, what difference does that make? Whether I practice sin this way or I practice sin that way, what difference does that make? The decision is who owns and governs me, whose affections drive my life, who sits in that first place. And Jesus looks at us and says, well, if you're not walking away from that, if you don't hate that, father, mother, sister, brother, wife, children, even your own life, then you're not my disciple. You choosing this sin over that sin does not make you my disciple. You walking away from all of these external things makes you my disciple. If you won't pick up your cross and follow me, well, if I stop doing this, then that community will reject me. Well, if I start thinking this way, then that community will reject me. Right. My disciples pick up their cross. The consequence of being my disciple, the ramification, is something that my disciples embrace. Even your whole life. Well, I like having, I like using my money the way that I want to use my money. Right. I like using my body the way that I like to use my body. My identity is my identity. Not if you're my disciple. My disciples give up their whole life. All of those things become subject to who I am and my governance and my authority. And people who make that decision are the ones who come and follow me. Paul expands on this idea in Colossians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you flip to the, to the right in your Bible about 100 pages or so, to Colossians chapter 3. He says this in verse 1. He's describing what a follower of Jesus is like and what has happened to us. Verse 1, chapter 3, Colossians. Since then you have been raised with Christ. So this is for those of us who have died to self, who have embraced what Christ did for us and have placed our... We enlisted. We made a decision, Right? We decided to go into it. Since you've been raised in Christ, here he says, because of that, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on a new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of 
God. Paul's writing here and he's saying, listen, because you are a disciple, this is what becomes true of your life. Because you're a disciple, you are working to rid yourself of these sins and these practices. Now catch what he's saying. He did not say, in order to become a disciple. If you don't get your anger under control and your idolatry under control and your impurity under control and your slander under control, then you're not my disciple. So he said, he didn't give a list of practices to conquer because that would be great and it would also make Jesus unnecessary. If I just had 10 things that I had to get together in my life and I could somehow get to those together in my life, then Jesus would have never had to die for my sins. I could be self-righteous. But I can't. So when Paul's going through, he's not listing those sins to say, do this one, do this one, do this one, do this one. He's saying something very different. He's saying, listen, because you are a follower of Jesus Christ, because you enlisted, set your heart on things above. So when you find your affections being drawn to earthly or temporary or sinful things, do a double check on your affections. When you long for impurity, when you long for greed, when you long for anger, I can't wait to go off on that person. Set your heart on things above. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Another place, Paul writes, whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is admirable, whatever is praiseworthy, think about such things. Another place the Bible says, I take a thought captive. When my mind goes on to earthly things, I capture it and place it somewhere else. I'm strategizing about heavenly things. I'm finding ways to have success in spiritual ways. When my marriage is going difficult in a difficult path, I'm reading, I'm thinking, I'm working to bring it back into alignment with Christ. How do I disciple my kids? How do we reach lost people? I'm using my mind. And I'm setting it on heavenly things. He goes on in that same passage, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. He says, your life is now hidden in Christ. I am wrapped up in Christ. My identity is completely changed. I'm only seen through my new identity. When my friend comes back from basic training, he'll come here to church and he'll walk in and he's going to look like a soldier and act like a soldier and think like a soldier. You know why? Because he's a soldier. His identity is hidden in that choice. He, he will no longer ever be who he used to be. And everything about him will be affected and be tainted and be identified through what he enlisted to do. This is my life in Christ. It's hidden in Christ. So that when you see me, you have to see me through the grid of Christ. And I want you to see me through the grid of Christ. I want to represent that uniform with honor and dignity, we would say, of the soldier. I want to represent Christ for who he is. My old ways were the ways that I used to walk when I lived, when I once lived that way. That's the old, that's, that was me back then. It's not me now. 
Those ways of thinking, that, that, that's the past before I counted the cost, before I enlisted. It's my old life. And because it's my old life, I now must also rid myself of the things that were tied to my old life. See, I throw those things off. I don't throw those things off to earn my salvation or to prove that I'm a Christian. I throw those things off because of my salvation, because I enlisted. That's why I do that work of getting rid of those things. I'm going to take off these old practices. When I was in the first place of affections in my life, I practiced my life a certain way. It was me first, me always. What do I want? What will bring me pleasure? What will bring me fulfillment? There were practices attached to that. I'm throwing those things off. It's who I used to be. It's not who I am. When, when I was in first place of authority in my life, and I chose my identity, I chose what I, what I thought was holy or not holy, I chose what to spend my money and time and energy on. When I believed that my life was my own, there are practices associated with that. I did certain things because I viewed myself in a certain way. But now I'm hidden in Christ. My identity in Christ drives me. So I put off those old practices. They're not a part of who I am anymore. And I swap them out for the new self. Instead of being bitter, I become compassionate. Instead of being vengeful, I forgive as I've been forgiven. Instead of being an elitist, I become sympathetic because I see myself in that person that before I would have simply dismissed or decided that God did not care for. When I look at someone who is struggling with a sexual immorality that I don't struggle with, instead of discounting them, I just look at my own struggles. Because if we could pop the hood on your brain, and we could project the memory of all of your secrets, is your life going to be what everybody else thinks it's going to be? Is it going to be acceptable to God? Or did you just learn to justify and rationalize these sins while judging and discounting those? And Paul comes in and says, those are practices. Pharisees being self-righteous about the, the Sabbath? Give me a break. If your kid was in the well, you'd violate the Sabbath. They're practices. And I'm swapping out the spiritual elitism for the humility and the gratitude of God's forgiveness that draws me to the heart of other people who struggle with things the way that I did. Just exercise a different practice than I was used to exercising. And Jesus says, people who are my followers don't conquer this sin and conquer that one and reject these people and reject that one. People who are my followers do this. They choose, see. 
They choose to put off the old self. They choose to be hidden in Christ. They, they, they choose to die to themselves. They choose to put off sin, all sin. They choose to die to themselves and be identified in Christ, all of their identity in Christ. They make that decision, see? And they look at that old life and its practices and that old life and its struggles, and they hate it. That's who I used to be. I don't want to be that anymore. They look at those old pressures and those old societal pressures, and they hate them. I don't want to be defined by that anymore. They pick up their cross. Man, if you commit to Christ, you're going to have to be celibate the rest of your life. Right. If you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have to, like, not have sex with it. Right. You're going to have to give up a lot of your money to help the right. You're going to have to let go of like your bitterness. And it, right, I pick up my cross see, and I give up everything. See. For a long time, my faith never informed my business life. My faith never informed my view of pornography, my faith never informed my eating habits. If they don't give up everything, then they cannot be my disciple. And Jesus isn't being harsh. He's being clear. Why can't I be your disciple? Because you, you didn't choose to be my disciple. I'm not kicking you out or being snotty. You didn't decide because this is what this is, right? And my disciples are not people of perfection. They're people of pursuit. They keep putting off. They keep forsaking. They keep dying to themselves. And they do that again and again and again and again. I wanted to give some kind of handles to get a hold of this weekend. and So I wrote down these questions, but then I realized they were super deep. So <laughs> here you go. This should, this should mess you up for a solid week. If, if it didn't, you, didn't, you need to re-listen. You stay for the next service, right? <laughs> so here's the first question I wrote down. This is a tough one. What's your line of elitism? What's your line of elitism? Because I would argue, me first in line, we all have it. We all have a line where we say, there's no way that God will ever care about or deal with that person, therefore I feel justified in not caring about or dealing with them. God doesn't have a heart for them, so I don't have to have a heart for them. And we all have a line of elitism. Now, that line of elitism does two things. One, it shuts us off from other people. Where we've just determined that, that sin is the sin. There's no way, right? So we, we, it shuts us off from other people. The other thing that it does is this. It also shuts down our receiving of God's mercy and grace in our own life. 
Ready? This is the deep part. That's why we hide our sin. See, I'm okay if you're prideful. I'm okay if you're greedy. I'm okay if you're a gossip. But if you're like addicted to pornography, like, that's just wrong. That's why I don't ever tell anybody about my addiction to pornography. I'm okay if you're this way. I'm okay if you're that way. But I'm not okay if, if you're this way. That's why I never tell anybody that down deep in my heart, I harbor hatred toward. I'm okay if you have lust for women. But if, if you have lust, same-sex attraction, that's just disgusting. That's why sometimes when I do... I would never tell anybody about. So whatever our line of elitism is, is where we've determined that God will never love and he won't love me either. So instead of sharing my sin, confessing my sin, allowing my brothers and sisters in Christ to press into my sin, instead of forsaking my sin, I'll hide it. And when you hide sin, all you will wind up with is spiritual cancer. It will just kill you spiritually. And Jesus would look at all of us in some area of our lives. Just, I mean, there's a list there in Colossians. Just pick one of those, right? So he looks into us in all areas of our lives, and he's like, come on, man. If, you, if your kid was in the well, you would. If your ox was in the well, you would. As we figure out our line of spiritual elitism, there's a second question that comes in. And it's this. Have you allowed Christ to take hold of you? Because in our struggle with spiritual elitism, what we think is, well, Christ doesn't want to take hold of that group of people. After all, you know, they're Muslim. They're terrorist. So he doesn't care about them at all. So Christ doesn't want to take hold of people, and he doesn't want to take hold of me either. So if you're, if you're like a churchy person, you tend to know that that's not true. So if I said, so you don't, you believe that God would say that some sins are, that he won't forgive some, no, I know God will forgive, and God's rich in mercy and full of grace, because you say it every week, and I, right? But do you believe it for you? So some of us take a hug from God like my teenagers take hugs from me. I walk up to, I'm a hugger. I, I walk up to my teenagers and I'll hug them. My boys, not my daughter. She's sinless, so she does everything right. But, but the, the boys are wicked. And so I'll walk up to my boys, especially when they're in that certain like 13 to 16-year-old range, and you walk up to them and I'll hug them because I'm going to hug them. I'm just going to do it. And they'll take a hug like this. And I'll say, I'll make them. I'll be like, hug me back. They'll be like, and I'll say, I'll go, use your arms. That's the way that, that it works, right? And in that scenario, ready? It's not the father with the problem. I'm going to hug my kids. Sometimes it looks like tackling them, but... Whatever works, right? I get, 
whether they're in a place in their life that they're ready for that or not, they're never going to be able to look at their daddy and say, he was unaffectionate to me. It's not the father who's the problem. And your heavenly father does not have a line of spiritual elitism. All have sinned. All have fallen short. Christ died for all. He doesn't tolerate anybody's sin in any way, shape, or form. So he paid for all of it. He doesn't condone it. He doesn't enable it. But he'll forgive it. He'll forgive it. And he will heal. And when you think that you're gross and disgusting because you have an issue of swelling, and your sin is the one that the religious elite uses the example. See the disgusting guy? There he is. Jesus' response to you is going to get up and not touch you, not talk about you, grab you. I love you. But I have this grossness in my life. I know that. Let's, let's learn how to rid yourself of that. Let's learn how to put that practice behind you. There's a new self that you embrace. And my disciples choose that. And I want you to be one. What's your line? What's your embrace? That's what a disciple does. We're not perfect. That's ridiculous. But we're in pursuit. And we'll go back to this heart and mind. I will turn away from it. I will pick up my cross. I don't always know how somebody teach me, but I will. And I will yield all to God. And when Jesus says, come follow me, sign me up. I'm in. Right? All right. Band's going to come out. Give us a minute. Let's pray together. Jesus, love you. Thank you for loving us. Help us, Lord. All of us are not good at being disciples. We all struggle with it. And through your grace, you help us and empower us. You give us your Holy Spirit. You give us your word, the Bible. You give us each other, your church. And we walk with each other and we help each other. And God, it's not the practice, it's the pursuit. So to open our hearts, to yield our hearts, to open our minds to allow them to be renewed in you, Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, just like you said. Would you bring us to a point of humility, a point of gratitude with other people and their struggles and sin and with us and our struggles and sin to forsake our sin, to forsake ourselves and embrace you. In these quiet moments, Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, would you press this into our heart? Help us now in your name.